I was a kid growing up in Jersey. Uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the and Rob Kelly. And joining us this week... Talk about Gotta Serve Somebody from 1979, Slow Train Coming, is fellow Bobcat, Paul Ruther. Hi, Paul. Hello, Rob. Nice to be here. Great to have you on the show. It's very exciting. We're going to be talking about one of the big hit songs of the Bob Dylan canon. Uh, there aren't that many hit singles I think you can associate with them, man, but this this definitely counts. And it's a very interesting song. But before we get to that, of course, i got to ask you, Paul, how did you become a fan of Bob? Well, it was another hit, actually. So this will enable you to tell how old I am. But when I was a teenager, a tween now, I began to listen to Casey Kasem's American Top 40. Okay. From beginning to end and write down on a little chart all 40 songs. Wow. So I know that the first Bob Dylan song that really impacted me was Knocking on Heaven's Door. It debuted at number 36, September 30th. 1973. Okay. And I never heard anything like that song. I just started listening to popular music that year. I had no older siblings. My parents were distinctly unhip. My dad once asked me who Bob Dylan was. So <laughs> it was just not a world that I was familiar with. And then the music of that year, the, what I really liked, I mean, my favorite band at the time was Alice Cooper followed by Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin. So Knocking on Heaven's Door sounded to me like it was written in the 1880s by White Earp, like on the on the frontier or in the West, which I'm sure was the effect that he wanted to have. But there was nothing like that in my, in my years. And sort of the idea of singing about mortality and one's incipient demise, frankly, blew my mind. And I've been a Bob fan ever since, ebbing and flowing over the years with life responsibilities. There would be enormous gaps in my Dylan fandom, things that I discovered only late. But, uh, you know, for me, he is sort of the proverbial onion where you can peel back a layer and there's always more there. So even now that I approach, I'm 60, I'm still learning from him. I'm still growing in appreciation of his music, who he is, what he represents, And, of course, you're part of that, Rob, because I discovered your podcast nine months ago. Uh, Did you go back and at the time when when you when you heard Knock on Heaven's Door, did you go back and go buy the old records or did you was it more uh, following him going forward at that point? It was following him going forward. It sort of fits and starts, you might say. Um, I purchased Blood on the Tracks when I was 14 and then Desire the next year. But I didn't purchase the Hard Rain's Gonna Fall live album. I had read enough bad things about Street Legal that I didn't pick that up. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. I only discovered that much later in life. And to this day, Changing of the Guards is one of my favorite Dylan songs. Mm -hmm. But um, 
my friends and I, being teenagers of rather shallow minds, you know, we were interested in what's new. I had one very good friend in high school who I used to spend a lot of time with, backpacking, camping, and wherever we went, we didn't really know a lot about wilderness ethos, so a boombox would accompany us. And he liked the classic Dylan 64 to 65 albums. So we listened to Highway 61, revisited Blonde on Blonde, bringing it all back home over and over again. So then I went and got those. But that was kind of what I knew of Dylan when Gotta Serve Somebody came out. All right, that's interesting. So, okay, let, let's talk about, well, before we get to Gotta Serve Somebody, have you seen Bob Live? I have. Three times. Only three, I'm ashamed to say. Why are you ashamed? I feel like I should have seen him 103 times now. But, uh, you know, he wasn't foremost in my mind. Each time was memorable and sort of grueling. Uh, I saw him open his European tour in Verona, Italy in 1984 when Santana opened for him. Uh, I was in Firenze at the time doing the Let's Go Europe Lonely Backpacker thing. I was in a record store. I bought tickets. I took a train to Verona. I had no idea that if one got up to go to the bathroom during the concert, one seat would be gone forever. Um, There were no reserved seats. Yeah, it was at an old Roman amphitheater. So I got there reasonably early. I sat down. Uh, The evening wore on. Santana played. I had to go to the bathroom. When I came back, I had to struggle my way to the point where I could even, I think I was in sort of a causeway, and I could look under an arch and see a microscopic Dylan playing off in the distance. So I don't remember the concert that well as much as the experience of seeing a concert in Europe being surrounded by people speaking Italian. Wow. Uh, the next time I saw him was even more arduous. It was 1987, and I saw him and the dead at RFK, We were in, I went with a friend. We had general admission seats, which meant no seats. We were standing. And uh, it was 100 degrees that day. (laughs) Somehow Bob wore a leather jacket. And uh, (laughs) I couldn't believe that somebody would wear, I think he even had leather pants. But, you know, I was in shorts and a T-shirt, sweating my, my brains out. And it was an endurance contest. I'm not a huge dead fan, so it didn't really... It didn't uh, sit with me all that well. Again, I thought of the rigors of just enduring the concert. And then I saw him in great comfort and ease at Wolf Trap, which is an outdoor amphitheater in suburban Virginia. Okay. Ani DeFranco opened for him, and it was before Time Out of Mind came out, and he zipped through a 14-song set. Uh, It's one of those concerts where there was no interaction with the audience and seemed very joyless to me at the time. I've only since come to learn that that was part of the Dylan ethos of trying to make original music for one's audience and not endlessly recycle the hits Mm. and devote yourself to, how's everybody doing tonight? (laughs) How's Topeka? You know, when you're in in Lawrence or whatever. But I didn't know that at the time. And, you know, my wife was like, after Ani DeFranco was done, that's who she was there to see. She's like, let's go, let's go. But we managed to to stay through the whole concert, and I enjoyed it very much. Okay. So, but you know, it's been it's been twenty six years. I'm ready for twenty four years. Yeah, I mean, I could see after those those first two experiences, you you might have a little like, oh, I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to see. I mean, I I I would say if you go see him, well, we'll get into that later on. 
if you see him, you know, again, it probably won't be quite as arduous. I, I, w- I wouldn't want to go see a concert at RFK. Just this is so many people. Even pre-COVID, that just sounds daunting. It was. <laughs> and I, but I'm kicking myself, you know. I had many opportunities. And uh, eh, life intervened. What can I say? Well, I said maybe. Who knows? I'm not a bobcat. I'm a bob kitten. No, 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 you were, you were there in night. Hey, you were there for knocking on heaven's door when it first came out, man. There's no, every, anyone who's a fan of Bobcat, come on. So, uh, all right, well, so let's talk about God to serve somebody. I'm fascinated by this because, uh, as I've mentioned on the show previously, like I discovered Bob much later, like, like in 1989, 90. So I get to look back at all of his eras as finite things. And so I can judge them. I judge them a little bit differently because I saw that, oh, okay, there's Electric Bob and then there's Folk Bob and then there's Cowboy Bob or whatever. And then there's Christian Bob. But I was able to look at it as that's a that's an era that he went through and I can judge it and, and, and view the music as a finished thing. But what was it like for, for someone like you who had gotten into Bob just a couple of years earlier and you, I mean, you got into him right as he was releasing some of his best music. I mean, Blood on the Tracks and Desire back to back. Yeah. And, you know, street, despite the reviews, street legal. But what would, do you remember what your, your feeling was about when all of a sudden he's doing overtly Christian music? I remember quite distinctly because I was about to go off to college. Um, so I was already preparing myself for big life changes and it was pretty popular when I arrived at my college that um, fall. And I was, let's say, nonplussed by his version of Christianity and the idea that he was evangelical. I've read a lot about it since, and I sort of understand it as a phase. But at the time, I was just surprised. And I wouldn't say alarmed because... You know, he, he, after all, is his own person, and who am I to judge as an 18-year-old college student? Although they can be amongst the most judgmental humans around. <laughs> but um, I did not take to the idea. However, I took to the music immediately. I loved Gotta Serve Somebody. Uh, I thought it was just a wonderful song, and I liked Slow Train Come In even more. And I think in part it was because the previous year I had discovered Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits. And I thought Sultans of Swing was like anything I'd ever heard before when, you know, I was still listening to Bowie and heavy metal and funk and reggae, but nobody played guitar like Mark Knopfler that I listened to. So I guess I had read that he was associated with the album. I knew about Muscle Shoals. I didn't know much, but I knew about Muscle Shoals. And I suppose, in retrospect, it was, for me, this great contradiction of music I really liked with a message I really didn't agree with. And I made my peace with it because I had other things on my mind, and it wasn't that crucial to me. Right, right, right. Plus, Dylan was on Saturday Night Live, which had never happened. Yeah, well, we're going to we absolutely have to talk about that. Uh, and he got to do three yeah. songs. Nobody yeah. does three songs. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, you know, it was quite easy at the time for me to rationalize it. But I guess going on as I sort of realized that, you know, you can, you can do what Jerry Wexler, the producer of the album, said when uh, he said that Bob tried to evangelize him. Bob, I'm a 62-year-old Jewish Jewish atheist. I'm a waste of your time. Let's just make an album. (laughs) So I was like, let's just listen to an album. 
And, you know, my God was Bruce Springsteen and darkness had come out and he was on tour. It, it didn't matter to me that much that Dylan contradicted himself. Yeah. Uh, well, lyrically, I mean, let me go on a little bit with the, some of the lyrics here. He says uh, you might be a rock and roll an addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be, be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief. And then he goes back into the course. You're going to have to serve somebody. Uh, you may be a state trooper. You might be a young Turk. You may be the head of some big TV network. You may be rich or poor. You may be blind or lame. You may be living in another country under another name. You're going to have to serve somebody. You're sorry, okay, you said earlier uh, a moment ago that you don't agree with the sentiment. What, how do you take this song in your mind? What Because initially, I mean, initial read is Bob saying you have to serve one or the other. And of course, if you're not serving God, you're serving the devil. But I've seen other interpretations of the song saying that it's a song about uh, enslavement to a certain amount, that, that everyone is serving somebody. Uh, it may not be the it may not be the Lord or the devil, but it's somebody you're you're under someone's thumb uh, somewhere. And that's it's a song about that more than it is about necessarily serving the the devil or the Lord. What's your read on it? Well, my read now, of course, is very different than when I was 18 or 19. I think at the time, I believe many paths, one truth, and somebody saying either or, and the idea that there's a devil, and, you know, that album is preachy. Let's just face it. You know, there's a lot of lines being drawn in the sand, and I was trying to think of things in a more relative, gray, nuanced way, even when I was in college. Now that I'm looking back at it, and I've had the advantage of years of reflection and reading, and of course, prepping for your show a bit, <laughs> um, part of me thinks about it metaphorically, and I think about it kind of the way I do about sort of human liberation and within a political frame or a spiritual frame. There's a path to liberation and there's a path to sort of enslaving others or in being sort of uh, oppressed. And, you know, one thing I became aware of just this year, I went to Georgia to work on the Senate campaigns and I would go around and talk to people and they would say how awful I worked for the Democrats, if that's not obvious, how awful Trump is, what terrible times we had. And at the same time, I was reading uh, Taylor Branch's history of the civil rights movement and reading about what Georgia was like in 1964. So, you know, Trump wasn't the worst of times. It was worse in 64, 1964, and it was worse in 1854. And, you know, I get think back to the old folk song, which side are you on? There's always liberation and there's always oppression. And when I view this song in that light, it makes a lot more sense to me. And, you know, as you know, as a, a senior Bobcat, Rob, one can interpret Dylan's songs in a whole variety of ways. And his individual interpretation uh, is meaningful and powerful, whatever it is, to the extent he explains it. But the message that I choose to take away is that one is always called upon to prove which side they're on, ultimately. And ultimately, I think that's what he was saying in that song. Choose a side. And no matter who you are, you have to come to a reckoning someday, regardless of your place in society, whether you are corrupt, whether you are working class, whether you're powerful, whether you're an outlaw, you must choose a side. And that's kind of how I think about the song now. 
and you know, I've I've read a number of books and know about the what's the vineyard, the vineyard group, and all that. Um, and I see that as sort of like the topical stories that help bring his gospel or his religious phase about. But going forward, as he grew away from that, one can see this song in that time in a bigger contextual picture, as you said, as part of an era. Yeah, I mean, I will admit this was as much as I recognize this is a big song in the Dylan canon. Uh, I mentioned it was released as a single on on August 20th, 1979, backed with uh, Trouble in Mind, which was a song uh, recorded for Slow Train Coming but left off the album. It peaked at number 24. By the way, I mentioned um, a couple episodes back when we did the Everything is Broken uh, episode uh, with Chris Lewis, um, where that song was released as a single, and it was backed with a song from Down in the Groove, which was just absurd. Um, Considering how much unreleased Dylan material there is out there, I'm always amazed that when they release one of these singles without putting b-siding it with like like a bonus track you would think that would help sell it so i think this made a lot of sense to put god to serve somebody with a bonus song because that would drive you to go buy the thing you know like oh is this something yeah. i'm not gonna get to hear on the on the record i've always taken this song uh, to me it's it's really the groove that i like more than the lyrical content and much as i love street legal and i do uh i mean everyone we know that bob was dissatisfied with the sort of ramshackle sound that was a, that uh, that that record had, and he clearly was deciding um, this message that I'm going to be conveying, which is going to be a bitter pill for some of my listeners. I'm going to try and sweeten that pill a little bit by making this album sound as smooth and as uh, listenable as possible. And that's one of the first things you get from it. And part of that is the work of Mark Knopfler, who you just mentioned, and Jerry Wexler, because this thing, boy, the groove on this thing is just wonderful. That bass line on it. And it, this thing just sounds perfect in its own real way. Just that you feel like, even though this is a list song, another thing it has in common with everything is broken. And it does kind of go on. It sort of repeats itself over and over and just goes on. You do, do kind of feel like they could play this groove forever. Like this song could go for 12 minutes of just talking about different people. It has that kind of feel to it where you don't get tired of that wonderful sound. And I'm guessing that a lot of that has to do with Mark Knopfler, who was uh, obviously, as we know, a very sympathetic uh, co-conspirator with Bob. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I think that's why it certainly softened the message for me at age 18. I mean, I was sucked right in and happily, uh, you know, you make something in Muscle Shoals, it's going to sound better. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, I think I wrote you initially, like I had just put together some Spotify playlist with like 15 versions of the song. I mean, there's a reason why artists cover it over and over again. And it's pretty hard to find a bad cover. Mm-hmm. I did find one or two, but <laughs> okay, <laughs> but mostly they're really pretty good. And, you know, it's interesting. For a song that is, uh, again, on its surface, it sounds so serious. I mean, you've got a guy saying you have to find salvation and if you don't in, in the Lord, and if you don't, you're serving the devil, which is a pretty grim view of things. As you said, it's a very drawing line in the sand. There's a lot of humor here. Uh, kind of buried in, because if, if you know Bob, there's a lot of stuff here that to kind of chuckle at him. And he continues, he continues on with, you may be construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own guns. You might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. First of all, we know that Bob lives in a mansion and he has an onion domed house. Uh, that for, for Bob fans, we know that that's 
you know, what he lives in. So the, the might living in a dome uh, makes me think Bob was probably sitting there in that dome and looked up at the thing as he was writing the lyrics. And the, the thing about the construction worker working on home, that makes me recall an interview I think he did with Kurt Loder for Rolling Stone, where he talked about that when he started refurbishing his Malibu home, the construction went on for literally years and it just kept, like, he would go on tour and he would come back and he would expect the house to be done. And they were like, oh, yeah, we're not done yet. And he's like, what, what's taking so long? And he said, he, he sort of joked about that. He thought that if people realized, well, this guy's got money, so we'll just keep building on the home. And I, kept, I can't help but think when I see the construction worker working on a home is another sort of moment from his life where he was just watching all these guys with hard hats walking around his house. And he was just sort of looking at them all and saying, oh, you all got to serve somebody. I can't help but. That's what I picture, at least for that verse, is it? And to me, that's very funny, knowing what you know about Bob, is that he's probably sitting here just sort of surveying the world around him and saying, oh, yeah, construction worker, yeah, maybe you're, you might own you might own a bank, you might be a landlord. He's mentioned landlords before in songs. So to me, mm-hmm. and we'll get on, there's even more uh, as the song goes on, but there's there's a lot of humor to be found in the song. Yeah, he's a funny guy. Um, I didn't know he lived in a, he had a dome. Where's his onion dome? <laughs> Apparently, part of the house has this onion-like dome, uh, and that's part of his Malibu home. So every time I hear that dome, I think, oh, that's – and he was getting it built right around this time, I believe. So, Yeah, I always wondered, like when I heard that, I would instantly think of Buck Miller, Buckminster Fuller and right. geodesic domes or right. like, you know, hippies living on domes and San Juan Island off the coast of Washington State, stuff like that. <laughs> He continues on. He says, you may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working at a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress. Maybe somebody's heir. Got to serve somebody. Might like to wear cotton. Might like to wear silk. Might like to drink whiskey. Hey, there we go. Might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar. You might like to eat bread. You may be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-size bed. And then uh, the penultimate verse, you've got, you may call me Terry. You may call me Zimmy. You may call me Bobby. You may call me Zimmy. I mean, bang, there it is. You may call me RJ. You may call me Ray. You may call me anything, but no matter what you say, you got to serve somebody. And the the whole RJ and Ray thing is a reference to a comedian who was popular at the time. Uh, who had? He was this guy who where? Do you remember this guy at all? This comedian? You I do not. That reference was lost on me then, and it's still lost on me now. I mean, I've read it, but. Yeah, there was a. Comedian. I don't know who they're referring to. Yeah, there was a comedian, and he had the, he, was the, he had this mustache, and he wore uh, a zoot suit, and he, his whole bit was that he could, and, and you know, again, trying to explain it. Uh, the name of the uh, comedian, by the way, was Raymond J. Johnson Jr., and his whole bit was that he would say, "Well, you can call me Ray, or you can call uh-huh. me this, or you can call me," that. and I think to people of any generation a little older than us. It's incomprehensible that you could, that was your, that was his act. That was it. That was the, first of all, what's funny about that necessarily, but I can remember being a kid watching television and variety shows and he was everywhere. He was everywhere. He was on like the tonight show and he would just do that. He would just do, you could call me this. You could call me that. And again, I don't know why that's funny. I don't understand the context, but here he is sort of being obliquely mentioned in a Bob Dylan song. And I have to wonder if he ever heard that. Uh, and he's still around, this guy. He's still... He's, really? Yeah, he's still around. He's, there's YouTube videos of him and stuff. And, I mean, he must know that he was mentioned in a Bob Dylan song. And it's the... it. You know, I get... 
some of the songs that Bob has, like Black Diamond Bay, where he talks about uh, watching Cronkite on TV. Sometimes I really can picture Bob just sitting in his onion-domed house watching television, and this random stuff just comes into his head, and he jots it down. And some of it filters its way into, gets filtered down into a song. And that's what I, I have to think was Bob watching like a Sonny and Cher special or something. And this guy was on and he just was like, okay, perfect. I mean, the idea that Bob would refer to himself in a song by calling himself Zimmy is just like, yeah. you, can't, you can't picture Bob really doing that nowadays. Was he ever called Zimmy like when he was a you know, in high school or middle school growing up? Maybe so. Maybe that he's pulling that out of it. Yeah, a nice nickname for a yeah, Zimmerman. Nothing wrong with that. So, I, I mean, in terms of the, the song, I mean, it, again, it's very repetitive. I mean, it goes, it goes on with the, the, you can do this, you can do that. Do you feel like it, where, do you feel like it wears out its welcome? Do you feel like it goes on a little too long? Or do you feel like it's kind of at the perfect length and then he wraps it up at the, like, five-minute mark? Hmm. I've certainly heard longer versions like, I think the one on Trouble No More, when he debuted the song at the Warfield Theater in San Francisco, I think that's like six and a half minutes. Mm -hmm. But that being said, uh, as you said, the groove carries it. And, you know, if if I really focus on the chorus, it could feel a little bit like getting hit over the head. But generally, I was I was entranced by the music. And, you know, that the fact that it is kind of a gospel-flavored R&B song. Yeah. And it just works. And there are really good country versions of it, too. So, you know, I think um, the, the, the music is a great vehicle for the ideas. And because he mixes in humor. And one thing I do like about the List songs is almost every line in here corresponds with a very powerful image as you were describing this comedian i think in the back recesses of my mind i can remember and you can call me rj and you can call mm -hmm. me ray you know like sort of a, a wise cracky type voice an image is conjured up but like might like to wear cotton silk drink whiskey drink milk eat caviar they all bring up images mm-hmm you know, and when you link them all together, they create sort of a larger story. I mean, maybe not in the way Murder Most Foul does, because they're not <laughs> as explicit. But implicitly, these phrases produce images in my mind, uh, all but the most banal of them, I would say. Yeah, I mean, he's incorporating virtually everybody. I mean, I, you know, you, I guess he's sort of saying you might think that you're uh, above this or you're going to escape this, but you're not. Everyone is involved in this from the lowest person on the, you know, the, the person on the lowest end of the social ladder to the highest. I mean, you may even own tanks, which, you know, well, that, that sounds like a military leader, uh, certainly, you know, someone of great power. And then again, he's willing to throw himself in where he talks about you might be a rock, rock and roll addict prancing on a stage. So, I mean, clearly there's a lot of self-references going on here. I'm sure he was probably thinking of some of his, his friends as well. Uh, but yeah, it really is kind of, and it's, it's an interesting way to it's an interesting interesting opening volley for what this record is going to be and you mentioned him playing it in concert um this song was played well according to bobdylan.com which we now know is incomplete uh it's been played 504 times live that isn't totally right because his um the the website ends with november 2nd 2019 uh so that basically that's the last 
concert they have recorded on this website, which he kept doing concerts. And in fact, when I saw Bob the last time on November 12th, 2019, he sang got to serve somebody. So uh, that's not recorded here. And it does not mention, it says the first time he played it live was November 1st, 1979. Well, he actually played it live, uh, as you mentioned, on Saturday Night Live, which uh, was the second episode of the fifth season hosted by Eric Idle. That aired on October 20th, 1979. So that actually, might, outside of the single, that is probably the first real live performance of the song. And as you mentioned, he did three songs that night, which was rare. Most musicians don't get to do three songs, but of course it's Bob Dylan. Um, they made a big deal about it. In fact, uh, in that episode, it opens with the, the cold open. Uh, it, the joke is that Eric Idle is suffering under like a horrible flu and he's too sick to go on. And Buck Henry is there with Lorne Michaels. It's like a backstage slice of life thing. And Lorne Michaels explains that he thought Eric Idle was jealous that everyone was making such a big deal that Bob Dylan was finally on the show. So he was faking. That's the, <laughs> that's the joke is that he's like, oh, I just thought, you know, Dylan was here and everybody's, and then it's a, it, it, and then the, the, the payoff of the joke is Buck Henry says, you've got a half dead Englishman in there. I can go on. I can fill in for you. And he says, watch this, Lauren. And th- th- there's the um, Harry Shearer who had just joined the cast comes out as a doctor. And he says, I can give Eric Idle a shot of adrenaline, uh, and that'll give him the energy to go on. It might kill him, though. And uh, Buck Henry says, you've got a half-dead Englishman in there. I can take over. Watch this. Live from New York. It's Saturday night. And there's this pause. And then the doctor says, I'll go in and give him the shot. And then I think, presumably, Eric Idle does go on. And you can see when Eric Idle, um, you can watch this uh, on Hulu. All the SNLs are on Hulu, and they're also on Peacock. You can see the visual, the visible delight on Eric Idle's face that he gets to introduce Bob Dylan. Because, and marking Bob Dylan's sole appearance on Saturday Night Live, uh, which seems remarkable. I guess, presumably, he was much more a fan of Letterman because he made multiple appearances mm-hmm. on the David Letterman show. But, you know, despite SNL being on for 40 more years, Bob has never been back on SNL. And one other thing I do want to mention about his appearance on the show is, uh, during the week of Bob Dylan's appearance, um, I guess he was presumably he was rehearsing the songs he was going to play. And, uh, the, the, of course, the song had been uh, got to search somebody had been a hit single crew members. The week of that show walked around the set singing an alternate version of the song to themselves, saying, uh, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lorne. Right. Lorne Michaels, you got to serve mm-hmm. somebody. So. I can only imagine what a treat that had to be like to work on SNL and get to see basically a private Bob Dylan concert as he's there doing this. That, that had to be amazing. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, do you know how many times he rehearsed? I do not. I do not. That's stuff. I mean, we know that the SNL does a uh, dress rehearsal around 5 PM on Friday. And it's basically a fully done version of the show. And then once in a while, if the live show goes crazy, and something goes wrong, uh, they will insert the rehearsal version uh, if that went well. So presumably Bob at least did it twice, and then I'm sure probably rehearsed. So yeah, there are um, some alternate take versions on the Trouble No More set, but that's, I mean, there there were no other alternate versions on all the, it's been on the, a lot of Greatest Hits collections, been on Essential, it's been on The Best Of, it was on Biograph, it was on the, the, the Dylan set. Um, I'm not sure how many takes they're aware of this, but there are a couple of alternate take versions, but basically the one 
that everyone is familiar with is the one you hear really the most of. It doesn't, from what I remember on the Trouble No More versions, I think I heard them once. There weren't a look, there weren't great differences uh, in terms of uh, how we did it. I mean, I think the groove is basically the same. Maybe there's some slight lyric alterations, but he opened uh, live wise when he started performing it at, at the gospel shows. It opened every single show from 1979, like all the way into like 1980 or something like that. I mean, every single show, which is really remarkable. He obviously was a quite proud of it and also felt that it was the perfect introductory song to this new era that he was uh, embarking on. Yeah. Well, it would shake an audience up and help them realize that, uh, you know, they're in for a new message, a new idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a take no prisoner song, even though it has a good groove. Um, thinking about the alternate versions, I know, I think there's one on Trouble No More that has horns in it. That's oh, okay. a little, I mean, the groove is the same, but he, there's horns that are added. And then the longer version at the Warfield Theater, it, it's a little slower. And uh, I don't know, it's sort of a, a, to me, my memory of it is, it has a little bit of a slow train come and feel mm-hmm. like, um, you know, justice is going to be delivered and you will have to make a choice. But instead of it being spat at you, mm-hmm. it's kind of like this is your day of reckoning coming. That's my take anyway. Yeah, I did, stand a revision. <laughs> I did find it interesting that he started wheeling it out again. Uh, in 2019, because he doesn't, or actually 20, you started doing it in 2018. Um, and then he's been basically playing it a lot since, because he doesn't pull a lot of songs from the quote unquote Christian records. Uh, those, those generally aren't songs that he, he, you hear him sing a lot from. And all of a sudden he was doing it all the time. So obviously we either, you know, Bob is either, uh, back to endorsing the sentiments or he has found a new, he feels about it differently maybe. And so therefore he feels appropriate to pull it out again uh, and go out and play it. And, you know, you talked about that. It is a fairly line in the sand kind of song. Uh, and despite the fact that it was, you know, such a, a hard turn from what we would, what people were expecting about Dylan, it was very well received. And it was, uh, he won a Grammy for this for best rock vocal yeah. performance in 1979. So, I mean, this was a very, and we know Soul Train Coming was a big selling record. And they said, well, I mentioned that uh, it was a, a number, it re- peaked at number 24 as a single. I mean, it was very well received despite the message. Uh, it was a very, very well received. Now, one person that didn't like it, of course, was Bob's friend, John Lennon, who went on to record, I don't want to say it's a parody song because it's not a parody, but a, a, a um, response song called Serve Yourself. And Lennon did not like this turn that Bob Dylan took. And I, you know, you got to wonder, like, what does, what's that got to be like to have your friend kind of respond to what you're doing with a, with a, a follow-up record? I mean, we know Bob and the Beatles kind of were doing that sort of thing with the whole Norwegian Wood fourth time around mm-hmm. thing in the 60s. But for Lennon to kind of so, like, kind of a finger in the eye sort of thing to your, to your friend, that's got to be a very strange set of circumstances. Yeah, well, I wonder if Lennon and others felt like when he was singing Gotta Serve Somebody and if one listened to and analyzed the lyrics of Slow Train Coming, that Bob was sending a message to all his old friends and his unbelie- the unbelievers, those that weren't making a choice, those that were rock and roll addicts dancing on a stage. Uh, you know, it's hard to say who threw the first shot in that fight if you want to believe it that way. 
because uh, I think one thing Clinton Halen's book indicates, at least the older version I have, is that um, I think Grail Marcus and others said that it was a spiteful album, that, you know, Bob's message was negative and that, you know, it was sort of, it was good versus evil, but he was calling out names and taking no prisoners. So I wonder about the response. And then I guess, you know, his subsequent two albums and the tours afterwards, you know, he didn't back off from the message, really. I think he stayed pretty consistent through Shot of Love, maybe tempered it a little. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder who who was in Bob Dylan's mind as the people that weren't hearing him and were choosing, you know, not to take the, the righteous path. We're denying Jesus, as it were. Yeah, I mean, throughout a lot of the Christian songs, he mentions friends. He mentions his friends as having been fallen or not following the path. And you got to wonder, like, when he was running into his friends, like George Harrison, was he trying to evangelize George Harrison, you know, <laughs> or like yeah. Tom Petty or whatever? Like, I mean, you got to wonder because, I mean, everyone uh, everyone feels differently about things. And I, I've mentioned before that I am not a man of faith. I have friends who are. And, and I get along with those people just fine. Uh, but if any of them tried to uh, proselytize to me, that would probably be a big problem. You know, yeah. I, would be, I would be like, whoa, wait a minute, you know, knock it off. You know, and it's, it's one thing to say, all right, this person is a man of a man or woman of faith. That's great. And they can talk about it and feel free to talk about it in front of me. But at the same time, don't try and sell me on it. And you got to wonder, Bob's trying to sell it on Jerry Wexler. You know, you mentioned Wexler's great quote. You, right. wonder if that, you wonder if that was the end of it, if Bob gave up at that point or Bob keep trying. Because at a certain point, you would be like, I mean it. Knock it off. You know, <laughs> just, let's just make a record. Yeah, I've never read anything about fellow musicians or close friends feeling like he was putting pressure on them. Uh, as far as I know, and this isn't going to be very far, obviously, I'm no scholar of this, and it really was more about his beliefs, right? Uh, with Wexler being the one notable exception. <laughs> and that could have even been said, you know, mostly in jest, and to make a point about, you know, what's important here is the record. You know, the message is part of it, but the record is what's important, and the music that comes with it. I, uh, I, well, I was just going to ask, Rob, do you know, like, I've read statements of Dylan describing his Christian phase, as it were, like from 87 backwards, but nothing since. Uh, you clearly read a lot more and keep up. Have you read any of his reflections on the religious period as he's grown older? He's mentioned it obliquely. I remember he was interviewed in Newsweek around the time of uh, Time Out of Mind. And he kind of mentions it there, and uh, he was sort of asked, you know, do you follow any sort of religion? And he said, I believe the songs. He says music is his religion at this point, and it's I mm. believe the songs. And not referring to just his own songs, or maybe not even referring to his songs at all, referring to other songs. And he talks yeah. about other songs that he that he is a fan of and that, uh, you know, there's a – I will admit there's a – first of all, um, you know, like, got to serve – if if, if – if he's trying to convert people, I will say for me, got to serve somebody's not going to do it. Uh, I just, I'm able to just say, oh, it's a nice song with a nice riff and uh, it's, I can ignore it. I will say the following song, Precious Angel, which is my favorite song on the record, and we haven't gotten to that song yet on the show. You're never going to convert me to Christianity, but that would get me close because that song mm -hmm. is so good and it's yeah. so beautiful. And it's, to me, it sounds much more warm and accepting 
despite some of the even lyrics about we're covered in blood girl and whatever. But that song is so gorgeous uh, that that's one of those like, boy, I could see why if this is what Christian music sounds like, I, I, maybe I'm on board here. But later on, of course, when he would in the late 90s, when he was opening his concerts with songs like uh, Hallelujah, I'm Ready to Go. Like to me, that's a that's a kind of religious song I can get behind that kind of joyous, not so much God fearing, but God loving Mm-hmm. kind of thing that i'm that i'm that i'm on board for you know hallelujah yeah. i'm ready to go i'm like that's that's wonderful you know put the I, sometimes i almost think yeah, just do a covers record of those kinds of songs that would have been that would have been great but yeah he's only mentioned it and once in a while he'll he'll referencing you know yeah he knows that he he referred to himself in the third person as yeah my dylan so-called born again period blah 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 so he's he's aware that these things have been said about him how could he not be Mm-hmm. Um, but so, you know, and, you know, we have to remember that when he, he uh, started his residency at the, the war field in San Francisco, it got really negative reviews at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, people were, were critics were like, what is this stuff? And you got to look back on it now. And of course, as a Dylan fan, it's like a Dylan, Dylan fans dream that, you know, you're seeing him in concert playing nothing but brand new. Not only are the songs brand new from God to Serve Somebody, but the other half of the concert were songs that he had never done live before because he realized you, had to, you couldn't fill a whole concert with just 10 songs. So, I mean, man, I think almost any Dylan fan, if you said, would you, would you be willing to hear nothing but religious material if half of it was all new songs? You'd say, yeah, I'd make that trade in a minute. That'd be amazing. But, uh, I mean, initially, at least for some concert goers, this was – not it was not welcome yeah well i speak for myself oh one thing i did want to comment on before thinking about that um every grain of sand to me is the religious song because of the humility of it yep and i think it's much easier to get behind a sentiment of humility and knowing one's place in the larger world and seeing the greater picture and the greater beauty without feeling like you need to dominate it or call anybody out and uh you know, that's, to me, the best song in that period in terms of what I can get behind as an idea, even if I like got to serve somebody's groove better. Yeah, you know? <laughs> right, right. Agreed. I, yeah, every grain of sand is just a straight up masterpiece in, in, yeah. in every, every conceivable way. So, yeah, I said it was it was a big song. It was uh, Bob's pretty much his sole hit during uh, the, the Christian period. He later on, uh, Joker Man from Infidels. Uh, had a little bit of a little bit of a of a popular, you know, as a single popularity as a single, but uh, this was really kind of the last big hit he would have for a while, and then eventually, you know, the music business would change entirely, and there's really not even really hit singles anymore. That's not even a thing anymore. But it's it, it's uh, the song still looms large in his canon, and then we, as we see, he's still interested in playing it live. Uh, I mean, something he's finding, and and I, I hope that he uh, goes up and digs more of the religious material out for concerts. That would be really interesting uh, to see if that happens. I said it's just a it's a, it's a huge song in in, in his uh, in his songbook. So, uh, Paul, uh, yes. before, before we wrap up here, um, I have to ask you a question that I've started asking my guests because uh, as we are now coming out of COVID, finally. Um, and, uh, there was of course that video that Tony Garnier did a little while ago where he said the words, when we resume touring, not if, when everybody jumped on that. I got to ask you, even though you haven't seen Bob in 23 years, let's say you're going to go back. What song would you like to hear Bob open your first concert with? And it could be any song you want, a Bob song, a cover, 
when sky's the limit bob comes and he says hey paul what do you want to hear me open the song with what would you like to hear well on a religious vein and taking no prisoners i want to hear him do false prophet okay I think that you probably that's a you probably have a pretty good chance of that happening. Yeah, well, that's just a kick-ass song, and you know he's taking on like what I was talking before about like um, you know there's a side of liberation and a side of oppression. I feel like he calls it out there. That's gonna be that song is gonna kick ass in concert. It is that <laughs> that, that beat that uh, that that is just gonna people are gonna go nuts. So that's okay. Ba-bum, ba-bum. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, that, that, there's an old, there's like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf in there by his side. Yeah, that's just going to be, that's going to be fun to hear. So uh, we're going to have to look forward to endless live versions of, of the Rough and Rowdy Ways song. So, uh, well, awesome. Paul, um, thank you so much for coming by and talking Got to Serve Somebody with me. I really do appreciate it. It was a great pleasure, Rob. Hope to right. talk to you again. All right. Well, excellent. Thank you so much, Paul. I really do appreciate you stopping by. Uh, of course, everybody, if you want to follow this show, you just go to the website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to Pod Dylan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, Sebastian Krug, and George Doherty for their support of Pod Dylan. I really do appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Somebody